And please open your Bibles to Psalms 42 and 43. Please open your Bibles to Psalms 42 and 43. And let me pray for our time in God's Word together. Father, we thank you that you are God. And there are times that we need to be reminded of that because there are times when we lose sight of that, Lord. There are times when the oceans rage and the thunder roars and sorrows like sea billows roll are, are pounding upon us again and again and again. There are days, whether from grief or from suffering or from trial, Lord, where it seems like we are in a thick fog and, and we, just, we just can't see you. And so, Father, we thank you that that doesn't change who you are, that you are God. You are the God who created us. You are the God who loves us. You are the God who sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and rose from the dead to, to give us life. We thank you for the, these truths that we can hold on to. We thank you for your goodness that you have provided for us your truth in the midst of times when the oceans rage, the thunder roars. So we give you thanks and praise to you, our God. In Jesus' name, amen. There it is an emoji for everything, for every feeling, for every mood, for every experience of life. Now, some of you might go, what's an emoji? Well, what an emoji is, is one of those little images that you can insert into your text on the phone. And some of you are like, ah, that's why I don't understand. That's okay. But you can put into your texts, uh, there's happy faces and excited faces and laughing so hard you're crying faces. And there's also sad faces and angry faces and sorrowful faces full of tears. Because that's kind of what makes up life, right? Life's not just about happy faces. Life's also about sad faces. And that's one of the reasons that I, I'm so thankful that we're studying the Psalms this summer at Oak Ridge Free Church. Because we have something better than emojis to express every feeling and every mood in every experience of our lives, God has given us the book of Psalms for this purpose. I love how John Calvin once wrote, quote, I have been accustomed to call this book Psalms, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror or rather the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life of all the griefs and sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated, unquote. You see, there are times that we can get the wrong view of the Christian life. When we come to church and it's full of smiling people and, and, and times of singing happy, peppy songs, and, and, and we think, can think that Christian life is meant to always be happy faces. And, and there's good reason for that. There are, there's, there's good reason for smiling faces. There's good reason for, 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 for joyful songs because we have much to be thankful and we have much to rejoice in and who Christ is and what he's done for us. But at the same time, we need to remember, and the Psalms would cause us to remember, that we live in a broken world. We, we live in a world that's full of sin, that's full of suffering, it's full of loneliness. 
It's full of sickness. It's full of sadness. It's full of grief. Carl Truman, the former professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, he tells a story about how three times in a single year he was addressing Christians, evangelical audiences, and he was asking them this question. He asked them what miserable Christians can sing in church worship services. And on each occasion, the response was, quote, he said, quote, uproarous laughter, as if the idea of a brokenhearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd as to be comical, unquote. But he wasn't trying to be funny. He was 100% serious that, that Christian worship is, and the Christian experience is not just trying to whitewash the painful experiences in our lives. The Bible is not saying we don't talk about those things. We don't think about those things. That's not what goes on in the Christian life. Truman would challenge us to ask, what, what are the songs that miserable Christians can sing in faith? Truman would continue by saying, quote, by excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate both inside and outside the church. By so doing, it has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism and generated an insipid, trivial, and unrealistically triumphant Christianity and confirmed its impeccable credentials as a club for the complacent, unquote. That shot's fired right there. And this is why the Psalms are so important. This is why the Psalms are a gift from God. Did you know that over a third of the Psalms are laments? Over a third of the Psalms are expressions of brokenness and loneliness and sadness and despair. And that includes the Psalms we're going to look at this morning. Psalms 42 and 43 which address this important question about how do we as Christians when respond when life is miserable, when life is broken? How do we come to God in our suffering? I want to read these psalms in their entirety here together. Psalm 41 to the, uh, 42, sorry, 42, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. For the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. 
for you are God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. These two psalms that, although in our Bibles are separated by chapter markers, are really one unified psalm. There's one superscription uh, before Psalm 42 is identifying them as from the sons of Korah. But they have the same lament, the same refrain, the same sorrow. They're one single psalm. And, and, and this pattern of this psalm fits the pattern of what we experience in sorrow and lament. It's not a linear psalm. Bop, 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 bop. It's a secular, it's a secular psalm. It's, it's a cycle. It's not a logical psalm. It's an experiential psalm. The, the psalmist is working through their lament. They're like someone who's groping through a fog, trying to, 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 to understand what's going on, and they, they get to this conclusion, this refrain, hope in God, and then they circle right back down into the fog, and they're struggling in that fog again, and they kind of poke up above the fog again, hope in God, and they pop down into the fog again and again and again, because that's how grief works, right? That's how suffering works. That's how loneliness works. That's how depression works. It's not logical. It's not linear. It's cyclical. It's experiential. It's groping through the fog. That's like this psalm. And so as we study these psalms this morning, we're not going to go linear one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, because that's not how the psalmist is presenting this. They're presenting it, these experiences of brokenness. And that's what we're going to focus on is these, these different experiences in this, this, this psalmist is experiencing. Because this psalm is a gift from God for us. This, what the psalmist is, is declaring under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is an example for us of what we do in our suffering, how we should come in our suffering to the right person for the right reasons, with the right confidence, bringing us towards the right conclusion. Let, let's look at first how this, suffering would lead, or this psalm would lead us to show in our suffering that we need to come to the right person. Look at verses 1 and 2 again of Psalm 42. This psalm, it starts with a picture, right? It, it, it pulls on your imagination, your mind, and he wants you to think about a deer, and this deer is thirsty for water. It doesn't say why. Maybe there was a drought, and it's been, it's been days since it had, it's had a drink of water, or maybe the, the deer's been chased by enemies trying to, to eat it and persecute it, and it's, it's tired, it's weary, it's thirsty. It doesn't say which way, but it chose this deer. And in the same way that this deer is physically longing for water, the psalm is saying that his own soul is spiritually longing for a taste of God's presence. He's asking, when can he come and appear before God? Most, most Bibles have a footnote that this is an idiom, means to, to, when does he get to see the face of God? In the Old Testament, that this often described the, the experience of worship of God in the temple in Jerusalem. And so this, this psalmist is going through something in his life where he's separated from the worship of God. He's separated from the people of God. Some people that think that he wrote this during the exile when they were taken away from their homeland and taken to Babylon in captivity. But the main idea isn't about location. It's, it's not about an activity. It's about this, this psalmist has this need for God. Think, think, look through here how the psalmist talks about God in these first two verses. He first by saying just, you owe God. And then he thinks about God. No, God is the living God. He's there. I know he's there, but I don't feel him there. And then he, and he states he's longing to see the face of God, to meet with the living God. And here's the, here's the point of all this. He's, 
What's the psalmist's focus? What does the psalmist do with his thirst and his emptiness and his pain? When he feels distant from God, when he feels life has beaten him up so much that he can't even see God anymore, when he feels like he's going to die from spiritual thirst, where does he go? Where does he bring his sorrow to? To to God. He he has a hard time knowing where God is. He has a hard time feeling, but, but he knows God's there. So he brings his prayer to God. This is the common theme of all the laments through Psalms. The laments through Psalms are all addressed. They're addressing their lament to God. See, what's the difference between doubting and wallowing in your suffering, complaining in your suffering? What's the difference between that and faith in your suffering? It's all about who you bring your suffering to. It's right to be honest about our suffering. We're going to see this in the Psalm. But we need to bring that honesty to the right person, to God. See, a lament, like the psalmist is doing, is not a person-to-little-p-person conversation. Our laments are meant to be person-to-big-p-person conversations. In his goodness, God has given us this example of this psalmist wrestling with his circumstances. God, I don't understand what's going on. And in that, he's wrestling with God. We have an example of this man wrestling with God. Over the years, I've been, I've been drawn back again and again to R.C. Sproul's excellent book, The Holiness of God. And in that book, he, he talks about the story from Genesis of Jacob wrestling with God. And in that story, there's no question Jacob lost that wrestling match, right? In fact, Sproul says this. He says, quote, when we wrestle with the Almighty, we lose. He's the undefeated champion of the universe, unquote. So that means we shouldn't wrestle with God. That means we shouldn't wrestle with God in our situations then, right? Well, no. Sproul goes on as he looks at that story. He says, quote, there's some consolation here. Jacob wrestled with God and lived. He was beaten. He was left crippled, but he survived the battle. At least we should learn this from that, that, that God will engage us in our honest struggles. We may wrestle with the Holy One. Indeed, for the transforming power of God to change our lives, we must wrestle with Him. We must know what it means to fight with God all night if we are also to know what it means to experience the sweetness of the soul's surrender, unquote. Sproul's right. That's what we see in this psalm, that God is big enough and God is strong enough and God is glorious enough that we can be honest about Him with our experiences. The psalm encourages us that we need to bring our experiences, our suffering to him. See, that question of where is God in our suffering, that's not the wrong question. That is the right question. The problem is when we don't ask that question, then we try to think about our suffering absence of God, right? We're trying to explain our suffering merely about our circumstances. We're trying to think about our suffering merely about our experience, but that's not what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is saying, I need to think about the suffering in light of who God is and where God is. We need to bring our suffering to Christ, who, by the way, as the suffering servant, understands our suffering. And that's the place where God begins to work his transforming power in our lives. I love C.S. Lewis, how he once wrote, quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pains. And it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, in our suffering, the psalmist is telling us we need to bring that suffering to the right person. We need to bring it to God. But that's not all. We also need to to come for the right reasons. 
And as I mentioned earlier, this psalm is, is not linear, it's cyclical. So there's several different parts where he's talking about the reasons for his suffering. He's talking about the experience of his lament. And let's look at these throughout the two psalms. First, look again at the first four verses where he indicates this feeling again of an absence of God's presence. He knows the right doctrine about God. This guy is a great theologian. He, he knows that God was his God. He knew that God was a living God. He's not a false God. He's not some idol. He's the living God. He knew that God is omniscient. He knew that God was omnipresent. He knew that God heard, heard his cries. He had all the right theology, but he didn't feel like it. He felt like God was distant. He felt like God was absent. He knew one thing. He felt something else. Anyone else been there? Right? And this feeling of absence affected him so much, he says that his tears were his food. He, he wasn't hungry, he wasn't thirsty, that all he could do was cry. Others were taunting him and saying, where is your God? And that question must have hit him home really hard because he mentions it twice in this psalm. He mentions it again down there in verse 10. It's not questioning whether or not God exists, but it's a question of where is God in the midst of his pain? It's almost like the psalmist is starting to ask that question himself. Where is God? Why hasn't he responded to my cries? Why, why doesn't he under, intervene to change these circumstances? Where is God? He remembers the former days when he felt like he was close with God. In verse 4, he remembered these pilgrimages he took to Jerusalem. He remembered the festive celebrations and being close to God and this experience of God as he was with the people of God and the worship of God. But it wasn't like that anymore. He was all alone now. And all these were just are showing these genuine, real reasons for him to feel sorrow. That whether he was in exile away from the land of Israel, whether he had some cat catastrophic event, he found himself distant from everything. He was distant from God's temple. He was distant from God's people. He was feeling distant from God himself. That, that even those good memories brought him tears because it just wasn't like that anymore. And then, and then he goes on further to describe that feeling of despair. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, we have all these water images. He talks about the deep that reminds us of the chaotic waters at the, the formless and void creation. It reminds us of the waters of Jonah's flood. It reminds us of the references of the depths of the sea. And these waters are overwhelming in their relentless oppression of him. They're like a waterfall pounding the rocks below again and again and again. They're like the waves of the ocean swallowing up the stranded swimmer and threatening to take him away. If you have a King James translation of this verse, that word breakers is billows. This is, this is one of the lines that, that so many of our, 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 our hymns like to reference. When we sing, it is well, when we sing, when sorrows like sea billows roll, that's this picture. The, 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 the ocean feeling like it's going to swallow you up. Because isn't that what life's like sometimes? Aren't there times of suffering and loneliness and sorrow? It almost feels like you're drowning without a drop of water around. It, it feels like you're holding onto a rock in the middle of the ocean and the waves keep pounding on you and pounding on you and all you can do is just try to hold on for dear life. That's what the psalmist understands that experience. But it's not a faithless experience. Right? It's an honest response. These are real reasons to feel this. There's a real brokenness in this life that, that he's given this expression of what it is like in our lives when sorrows like sea billows roll. And then look further on. 
in verses 9 and 10, and also in chapter 43, verse 2. And let me read these. These are amazing verses. In, 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 in verses 42, 9, and 10, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? In 43, 2, he says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? These are shocking verses. I don't know about you when you read those verses, but when I read those verses and I think upon those verses, you, I, the first reaction is, you can't talk to God like that. You can't say that. You can't ask questions like, have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? I mean, if these weren't divinely inspired, Holy Spirit inspired, inerrant words of Scripture, these would be heresy. But they are divinely inerrant, Holy Spirit inspired words of Scripture. These are God's inspired words for us. They are a God-given example in the midst of our suffering that we can be real and honest and candid about our struggles with God. And make no mistake, it's not that the psalmist has just got off the wrong side of the bed, he's having a bad mood today, right? There's, there's real reasons, there's real brokenness in his life he's wrestling with. He's mourning because he's being oppressed. He's being persecuted by enemies. Not just, I know I've got enemies, real people who are oppressing him. He's being taunted about his faith in God. He didn't do anything wrong, and yet he's being unjustly and unfairly attacked and persecuted. In the midst of that suffering, he's being honest. He's bringing all of that before God, before God's throne of mercy and grace. But notice again, this is not a faithless prayer. These are not faithless questions. This is not a heretical prayer because he does know that God has not forsaken him because who is he praying to? To God. He's pouring out his sorrow. He's pouring out the questions of his heart, but he's pouring them out in faith to the only one who can give comfort, to the only one who can give answers in his distress. See, there's real reasons and right reasons to feel broken in this fallen world. And we need to remember that. I thought many times over the picture of John eleven thirty five, where Jesus comes to, to his, his friend Lazarus' tomb and John tells us that Jesus wept. It's a powerful image, but it's even more powerful when we remember what was about to happen, right? He's weeping, but he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew it was going to happen. He knew that that death wasn't going to be forever. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So the question you should ask is, why does Jesus cry? We're told that it is a temporal thing. It's when he did this when he saw the brokenness of the mourners. He was deeply moved in his spirit. It wasn't just about the death. It was about the experience of this brokenness, that, that this was not how life was supposed to be, that the loss that comes from death is an abnormality in the way that God created the world. Death is an enemy of everything good and beautiful about how God has planned life. It is a cruel reminder that sometimes we convince ourselves that things are not broken and things like death remind us that, yes, this world is broken. It is not functioning as God originally designed it to function. And it's not how it be, will function in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Jesus, even though knowing the resurrection would happen, he wept. It was a real and right reason to feel sorrow because there is real and right brokenness in this world that should cause such grief. 
So whether it's things that theologians call natural evil, things that just happen, not, not a person does it to us, but things that happen in our lives, like fires and hurricanes and tornadoes, things like sickness and infirmity and death, they're real reasons to weep. They're real reasons to lament. Or whether there's moral evil, like what the psalmist experienced, of being oppressed, by being, being sinned, by, sinned against by other people. Maybe it's having to go to work tomorrow morning with another dishonest boss or someone who just treats you like scum. Maybe it's, it's, it's having that, an unforgiving family member who just, every time you have to engage with family, just destroys your soul. Maybe it's, it's, a, it's a friend that has stabbed you in the back. There are real reasons and right reasons for sorrow in this broken world. But the psalm doesn't leave us there. It says we should identify our sorrow, we should be real about our sorrow, but we're not left in our sorrow because then we need to come with the right confidence. The psalmist intermixes with the sorrow these statements of confidence that he's experiencing suffering, but he's focusing on something more than his suffering. Look at what else he focuses on. Look back at chapter 42, verse 6. He says, his soul is cast down, therefore, or for this reason, he does what? He doesn't just sit there in his sorrow. He remembers. He, he doesn't just think about his circumstances in the present. He remembers about what God has done in the past. He says, he remembers you. He remembers God. And then it's kind of funny. He says, I remember you, God. And then he gives a bunch of geographical locations. What's, what's up with that? I was not a geography kid growing up. I liked math and science. So what does remembering God have to do with geography, right? Well, the psalmist is talking about this geography along eastern Israel, along the Jordan River. And, it, and the psalmist is people who, who meditated on God's word. That wasn't just a, somewhere that they vacationed sometimes, right? That wasn't just a, a, a personal remembrance. This was a biblical theological remembrance of what God did in that region in, in, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and, and, and from there on. See, the Jordan River is theologically rich in the Bible. The Jordan's a place where God ended the exile in the wilderness. This is where God said, You've been exiled in the wilderness, you've been, and you're coming into the promised land. He miraculously brought them through the Jordan River into the promised land. The mountains are where God brought them the victory of the promised land over the kings of the Amorites. And the psalmist is not just remembering good vacations in the mountains. The, the psalmist is remembering how God has rescued and redeemed his people in the past. He's looking back. What do I do in my sorrow? The psalmist says, we look back. He says he focused on God's past salvation. The way that God saved and redeemed in the past is what God's going to do again. The same God who brought his people through the Jordan and brought deliverance to them is the same God I'm putting my confidence in today. That's what he said he's doing. Then look further down at verse 8. And think about what he's doing here. He just talked about these sorrows like sea billows roll. But in the midst of those sorrows, he's remembering God's character. You see that in verse 8? He's remembering God's steadfast love that in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his doubt, he's remembering to look for evidences of God's love, that God does love him. God does love you. The day and night, there were still ways he could see God's providence, God's care, God's provision, God's love, God's protection, God's blessing. The very fact that the sun rose this morning is a mercy of God. The sleep that we got last night, whether it was a little or whether it was a lot, was a gift of God. And, and just remembering these little things of God's continual love 
and faithfulness, little testimonies of that to get him through the day. It reminds me of the writer of Lamentations. The writer of Lamentations was, was another example of grief or lament. He's pouring out his heart to God. And in the midst of Lamentations, he says this in chapter 321. He says this, But this I call to mind in the midst of his grief, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what the psalmist is doing too. He's remembering that no matter how bad things have gotten, God's character hasn't changed. Circumstances have changed, but God is holy, 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 and he has not changed. And so we can still count on his love and faithfulness. So in his sorrow, he doesn't just look back, he also looks up, and he puts his confidence in God's unchanging character. But that's not all. He doesn't just look back, he doesn't just look up, but look there at chapter 43, verses 1 through 4. Notice that there's something that shifts in chapter 43. See, in, in, in chapter 42, there's sorrow, and he's trying to fight for this, this confidence in God, but it's mostly just lament. But there's a shift in chapter 43 where he's starting to actually look towards God. He's no longer talking about the absence of God. He's starting to actually see God and reaching out to God. In chapter 43, verse 1, he looks to God's vindication, God's rescue from his oppressors. And in, in, in verse 3, he's asking for God's light and truth to lead him through the valley of the shadow of death. He, he, he knows that God can provide that and bring him back to worship on the, the hill of Zion. In verse 4, there's a tense change of the verbs. He doesn't just talk about the past anymore. He doesn't just talk about the present anymore. He starts thinking about the future. He, he's above the fog enough to think about what God has promised to do in the future. And there's a confidence that God will bring that deliverance. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it. But he knows that God will bring that deliverance. Not for the sake of the psalmist, but for the sake of the glory of God himself. That if God is glorious and if God's glory will be seen, he will bring that deliverance on the final day. It's like what God himself says, a prayer I've used so many times in my life. Psalm 50, verse 15. God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. What is my confidence in the day of trouble? It's not how good I am. It's in God's glory, that God will be glorified in these situations. God wants us to look to him in our distress, and we know that God will bring deliverance in his way for his glory. And so the psalmist can look forward and, and focusing his confidence on God's future grace, his future promises that God will be faithful in God's way for God's glory. You see, we often get confused because we think that our, in our suffering, it's an either-or choice. We often think that we either are trusting in God or we're lamenting over our suffering. That we either are affirming our distress or we're affirming our faith. But the psalm here is saying it's not an either-or decision. For the psalmist, it's a both-and decision. You guys see that? He's both crying out in lament over his circumstances and he's trusting in God. He's both affirming his distress, and he's affirming his faith in God. He's both broken by this world, and he's finding his hope in God's deliverance. They're not mutually exclusive. It is healthy to be able to hold on to both. It is nothing but fake and shallow Christianity to pretend like we don't experience broken situations situations that would cause us to weep. 
We are people who weep with those who weep. But it's also a fake and shallow Christianity to only look at those circumstances, to not look beyond those circumstances, to find our confidence in God in the midst of that suffering. It's both. We need, we need to lament, but lament is not enough unless we find our hope and confidence in God in the midst of our suffering. And what is true of the psalmist is true for us, that we need to look back at God, at God, how God has delivered in the past. We need to look now and up at who God is. We need to look forward in God's deliverance. But we have something so much better than what the psalmist had. The psalmist could look back to, to the deliverance of Israel, but we have something so much, more, so, so much better to look at. We can look back and remember God's love and faithfulness when we look to the cross, right? It's at the cross that we remember that even while we were sinners, even while we were enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us and raise him from the dead to give us life. God's the one who brought that deliverance while we were still enemies. How much more now that we're his children? It's at the cross that we have a guarantee that we will never be separated from the love of God. I may feel it, I may feel like I don't deserve it because you know what? We don't deserve it. We sin and we, we have rebelled against the God of the universe, but I don't have God's love because I deserve it. I have God's love because I am in Christ and I can never lose that love because he will, all, he will always love Christ and always love us in the Son. There's nothing I could do to earn it. There's nothing I could do to lose it. And it's at the cross that we find hope for our future, that we see the power of the resurrection at the cross and that the story's not over and that Christ is returning, and he's bringing about that new heavens, new earth, where he will wipe away every tear from every eye, and there will be no more brokenness, and there's going to be no more sickness, and there's going to be no more death. As we are with him in the new heavens and new earth, God, is the story is not over. He's not done yet, and we know, we know that the story will be completed one day from the evidence of the resurrection. This is the same thing Paul says, right, in Romans 8. If you want to turn over there real quick, if not, I'll, I'll just read it for us. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, that because of the confidence we have in the cross, because of the confidence we have in what Christ has done for us, he says something similar to what the psalmist is finding his confidence in. Where, this, where, the, where Paul says in verse 31, what shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Who, to, uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our hope. That's the hope the cross gives us in our suffering. And if you're visiting with us this morning and you, you don't have this gospel hope in Christ, you haven't trusted in Christ, we, we want to say welcome. 
We are so glad that you're here this morning because we live in a world full of suffering and we're sure that if you haven't suffered or you're not suffering, that you will suffer. That's part of life. And we want you to know the hope, the real hope that you can have in the midst of suffering, not just positive thinking, but real objective hope. You can have hope from the God who created us. And although we rebelled against God, even though we did not honor God as God, even though we did not worship God as God, even though we lived as if God did not exist, we lived in rebellion against God, which is what the Bible calls sin. And we've experienced the fallout of that sin and the brokenness that comes from sin in this world that God loves us and sent his son Jesus Christ to to live the perfect life for us and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay the penalty for our rebellion. He died for our sin in our place as our substitute. And he rose from the dead to give us new life so that our sin can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that that we would not just, just have a relationship with God, but God says that he would adopt us as his own spiritual sons and daughters and be cared for by God in his love in the midst of our suffering. And we're given the promise of the completeness of that life and the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returns. That, and he, he, this is all offered to us as a free gift. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can deserve. It's offered to you this morning as a free gift of grace. If you would trust in Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, turn and trust in him as your Lord and your Savior. We would love to tell you more about this Christ, more about the forgiveness you can have in Christ, more about the hope you can have in Christ. Please, if you want to know more about this Christ, this Jesus, please don't leave this morning without talking to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary. Afterwards, I'd love to meet you and and, and get to know you and tell you more about this Jesus. Because it's him where we find confidence and hope in the midst of our sorrow. And that confidence leads us towards the right conclusion. Not to the right conclusion, but a process towards the right conclusion. You see, three times throughout this psalm, the psalmist gives the same refrain. It's like he's, he's wrestling with his circumstances. He's, he, he's got his circumstances, his lament. He's also keeping his confidence with God and, he's, and God, and he's, he's wrestling with this. And he, and he comes to this conclusion again and again and again. This conclusion where he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Three times he, get, he says this refrain throughout the psalm. Now think about what the psalmist is doing here. He's talking to himself, right? Not in a crazy way, but in a very helpful way. He's talking to his own soul. He's talking to his own heart. You see, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our suffering, we have two choices. We can let our circumstances talk to us. We can let our circumstances dictate the truth we believe. Or we can start talking to our own souls. We can do the talking to our souls. We can can give in to the despair and the depression and the self-pity. Or we can start to wrestle with our souls. We can take ourselves in hand and start preaching to our souls. And what is it that the psalmist preaches to his souls? He asks himself, why are you downcast? Now, this isn't asking, you have no reason to be sad. That's not what he's saying, right? He just explained that, yes, there are real reasons for lament. This is not a, why are you downcast as in a, you better give me an explanation. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying why is in the sense that he's entering into dialogue with himself. 
He's asking his soul, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do with this? We are suffering. There's real reasons for suffering. But what are we going to do with this suffering? See, are you going to give in to wallowing despair? Or are you going to start clinging to hope? Are you going to descend into bitterness? Are you going to hold on to hope? Are you going to respond in anger? Are you going to respond with hope? You have to work and preach and wrestle with your own soul. We rightly weep and mourn and suffer and struggle, but we don't do so without hope. And it's not just general hope. I feel hope. I have hope. But it's specific hope. It's hope in a specific person. The psalmist is telling his soul, not just be hopeful, but hope in God. Why? Why in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the the sorrows like sea billows roll, why can we hope in God? The psalmist gives us that reason. He has to remind his soul of that reason because we forget. For, for this reason, hope in God for I will again praise him. He's got to remind his soul, the story's not done yet. It seems like I'm going to be swept away by the waves of this life. But my circumstances are not the end of the story. Sorrows like sea billows roll, but I can sing it as well with my soul. God's not done yet. We, we know that, but we've got to tell ourselves that. We've got to preach to our souls. God's not done yet. And when he finally is, when he's done in this season of su- suffering, and when he's done with this life of suffering, I'm going to praise him. When I see what God sees, when I see the final product, I'm going to praise him, my salvation and my God. See, there's a cure for our suffering that we work towards. It's not about changing our circumstances nothing about that. It's not about just changing our attitude. It's not just just be hopeful. It's about that we need to look to God to find our hope in God, our salvation and our God. And I love this part about the psalm. How many times does it take him to get to this this place? At least three. And he's still wrestling. You guys notice that? That, that, The psalmist is, this is not a take a Psalm 43 pill and feel better right? This is not a, he got to this conclusion, it's good, he never has to wrestle with this again. That's not what's going on. It's a continual battle. It's a continual wrestling. It's this continual progression to more and more cling to hope. Look at the progression as we take a step back of the psalm as a whole. The psalm starts in verses one through five, and you just have lament. That's all there is. There's no hope. There's no confidence. It's just lament. Just this absence of God's presence. But he's going to preach to himself. He's going to fight with his soul. And and so verse 5, he starts preaching to his soul. Cling to hope. Cling to hope in God. And then things start to change just a little bit. And verses 6 through 11, there's a lot of lament. There's a lot of suffering he's focusing on. But there's also more fight in him. There's a little fight. He's, he's starting to, to find some confidence in God. He's starting to remember God's deliverance. He couldn't remember it before, but he's starting to remember God's deliverance. He's starting to remember God's love. He, he could, God was completely absent before, but now he's starting to remember God's love for him. But he still needs to cling for hope. He's, he's still got to fight and wrestle with his own soul. Hope in God, hope in God, verse 11. And then in verse 43, as I said, there's a little bit even more of a change. His internal lament has turned into an external prayer. You notice that in 43, he actually starts praying. 
he's wrestling with God. He's wrestling with his soul. And by the time you get to 43, he starts, he starts actually being able to pray in confidence to, oh God, my God. That's a long way from God's, I, I don't even know where God is, to, oh God, my God. What's God in him there? This wrestling, this progression again and again as he fights in his soul to hold on to hope in God. He has to preach to his soul. And even when he gets to 43, he's not done yet. He's still got to preach to his soul, hope in God. See, our ability to cling to hope in the midst of grief and in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering and sickness and depression, it's a battle. It's a continual battle. But it should be a progressing battle. As we engage in that battle, we, we preach to our soul about the hope we can have in God. We find it little by little progressing us toward that right conclusion. Little by little progressing us toward that remedy that we can find in the midst of our suffering and despair. Where can miserable Christians go in their suffering? We have God's gift here in Psalm 42 and 43. Read the Psalms. As I said, over a third of the Psalms are lament. These, these psalmist expressions of brokenness and loneliness and sadness and despair, they are God's gift to us. They're God's gift to you. They're God's gift to me in the midst of our suffering. And, and as Dave prayed earlier, these were a gift to our family suffering recently. That last week, in the midst of God's providential plan of studying through these psalms, that, that we found out that, that Amanda had a miscarriage. And, and, it's, and, and just a reminder that this world's broken, and it's hard. And, and, and yet this time was extra difficult for us than, instead of other losses we've had, because we had to explain that to our boys who are just at that age where they could understand. Where, where I had to hold Isaac in my arms as he's, as he's just weeping. So I had to hold Gus. He's, just, he, he's literally just screaming and clawing at my face in anger because that's the only reaction he knew how to have to, such, to, to that feeling of loss. And, and, and I don't share this because I want to sensationalize our experience. I don't, I don't share this to give a sermon illustration. I'm sharing this because we, we, we feel real brokenness, don't we? But I, I also share this because to, to remind us that God's truth is really sufficient in our suffering. This is not a take a Bible verse and feel better, but this is where we can find our lifeline in these pictures like Psalm 42 and 43. They are a gift to us, God's gift to us in this broken world when we're experiencing sorrow and suffering. This is not a theoretical lecture. This is not an intellectual idea to grasp. This is God's spring of water for thirsty deer. This is God's provision for us in the midst of miserable circumstances we go through in this broken world. Psalms like these are our lifeline. They are a path of how we can come to God in our sorrow, in our grief, in our struggle. They help us start preaching to our own soul. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God.